It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to Drifter Sympathy on Feral Audio. Go to feralaudio.com and click Shop Amazon to shop through their Amazon portal. Proceeds support this and other Feral Audio podcasts. Oh, so really can't stand presenting myself, but this is a new me. So I, I mean, I'm totally different now. This is a new emo? Yeah. I think that the concept of Drifter Sympathy or the impetus behind this podcast in general was that if you can begin with telling stories about yourself, ironing over what made you you, sort of diving into the Bermuda Triangle, the gray area of when you're 13 years old and you're about to take a really permanent shape. You're kind of going through all of these definitive moments and decisions that are about to be made. By understanding the past, you gain more control over the future. Carl Jung had a really famous saying that if you don't posit the unconscious contents of your psyche, then those contents will continue to rule you. So if you don't explore yourself and uh, overturn these rocks and uh, understand the archaeology of what is driving a lot of your behavior, which is the heart of psychology, then you will continue to be ruled by the patterns that you are not taking apart their power over you, right? So you're like, you don't have the essential individual freedoms that you imagine you have if you're not pulling apart what's at the bottom of the kind of robotic aspects of your psyche that dominate the rhythm of your behavior. I think there's an inherent duplicity to life, I think there's the temporal reality where you're this guy named Jonah that's bumbling down the street and like time rules everything and and environment rules everything and you bump into this person and they steal your wallet and this temporal world is ruled by a certain set of scientific law. Then I think there's another reality where we exist within a realm of our true destiny and that that reality 
it's like a plane that we exist on at the same time that is uh that's kind of where we exist in our mind maybe the ego tells us this that we are these tiny gods that are infinitely occupying this persona you know has these very specific qualities and 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 fates So I kind of want to get into those stories as a weird means to opening the curtain behind them, you know, a way to like basically tell the story of your life and go into the mundane details to open up the creases of those tales that give evidence towards a world behind them. The value of being honest translates infinitely and i think music has proved that in my life but also i don't think that podcasting has to be much different i think that it can be just people being so ruthlessly honest that they overturn things about all of us inevitably that we want to understand or maybe heal or reevaluate or seize control of or merely put in perspective. A lot of the viruses inside your brain are just, are not necessarily implicit to you, but they're things that you've relented to, scripts that you've kind of let dominate. Who you are is probably a much more malleable thing than you would really let yourself believe most of the time because what would happen then is then you'd have responsibility. And your responsibility would be in question Whereas most people would rather feel that they don't have any responsibility. And that was one of the big missions of existentialism was to, to put the responsibility on people's shoulders to make them realize that they actually might be responsible for their actions and they may be able to make up their own worldview. say this the significance of the Ron trilogy which will probably be compared to uh, you know a lot of great trilogies yes you know, I would say that the significance of the Ron trilogy is the role of the guru The guru concept is is something that I've always wanted to focus on, especially when I was originally going to write this book. The book was called My Best Friend because it was about growing up with my only true best friend in this kind of... Do you know much about Rimbo? No. Rimbo had this uh, lover, poet, best friend, Verlaine. 
And their adventures were uh, super dark. Rimbo as a teenager is all about taking drugs and like exploring sort of the other side of life when everybody else goes to bed at night. And they had a witchy alchemist vibe, breaking every rule, shattering themselves, doing whatever they could do to push the limits of their own psychology and... They were doing the Faustian trade, basically. They were, like, sacrificing themselves to see what could be seen. And so, in the tradition of Rimbaud and Verlaine, and, like, these duos that could be Narcissus and Goldman, these young friends that kind of, like, go into this monkish calling of, of exploring themselves... I had already been inducted by Ron and Ron's little cult or whatever. So the Ron thing, accidentally, as you pulled me into it, I started to see the cosmology of everything, you know, where I was starting to understand the spiritual current that, that's like pulling you towards yourself when you're 13. You know, by 17, you've got a car and a girlfriend and you're kind of putting down a lot of the toys and the training wheels, and you're kind of like a cocky kid at that point. So I think it's cool to go back before that and start back when you're in an amorphous period, and you're just sort of like, you could kind of become anything. And the significance of the guru is that it pulls you towards your true form that you're going to end up in, and you're drawn by an affinity towards the guru because they personify these natural qualities that you see as being the most important. So you're, you're, it's like drawing you out of yourself, luring you towards yourself. Obviously, you may think of bands because they personify a way of life, a complete fashion, a complete value system on how you interact with the world, an entirely built-in like way of being. Yeah, totally. When I was like 15, I used to roadie, sort of, but I didn't really have any skills, but my guitar teacher was older than me, and he had a band called Trip. <laughs> Dude, I still have their demo somewhere. They were amazing. I found out later that almost all of their songs were covers, but they were all like nuggets, like I Can Hear the Grass Grow. I thought they were all originals. I didn't know. Their logo was a mushroom and the oh eye was a joint. God. This was when I was younger. I wasn't old enough to drive yet. Okay, so I'm so probably like, like 14, 14 yeah. 15. And I would go with these guys to their shows. And at the time, they were probably like early 20s, I would imagine. And we would go to the shows, and they would play. And I would sort of help this guy string his guitar, but not really. And like, Yeah, why did he have you there? I have no idea, but I remember I, that was the first time I ever bought weed was with those guys. The first time I, I ever smoked opium. Like, so you're like a tiny rimbo. Yeah, it was amazing. And their singer, this guy Dan, incredibly good-looking dude, like super long hair, like really intense. Like You've got to wonder where that guy is right now. Well, he actually died, and it was super tragic. It was big news in Cleveland. He he was the first dude I smoked opium with, and he had like this made this pipe out of tin foil, and we were at his apartment. So, what? How old would you be? At that I was point? I, 15 at the oldest. Their singer was super intense. They had kind of come out of 
the 80s scene. Like, they were in a band before Trip called Fashion Police. Basically how he died was he got stabbed by some dudes. You know, Cleveland has a lot of really bad areas. He got stabbed, got into his van, was driving, and ended up, like, basically, like, passing out from loss of blood and, like, crashing the van or something. But and Jesus I remember, Christ. like, they had, like, groupies and stuff. Like, I remember my guitar teacher would be like, drummer's going to give you a ride home tonight. Like, and I would be like, there would be these, like, hot girls who, to me, were, like, these adult women who were probably, like, 19. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, like, what I did before I was into hardcore. That was, like, sort of my induction. Like, I remember I bought weed behind a subway the first time. They showed me how to smoke weed. Mm. Like, they, like... But that was sort of my indoctrination. I wouldn't. I don't know if they were my guru, but I took guitar lessons from this guy for probably like five years. They probably inextricably illustrated a life of like how drugs intermingle with music. It, Absolutely, you, you know. Yeah, they would just bust into like tales of brave Ulysses or something, and they would just kill it, and you would just be like, "Fuck, this is fucking awesome!" Right. I mean, their singer would be climbing stuff. Like it was. They were all really good musicians. Something happened a few years ago where I had a very sad moment and I realized that I couldn't remember why I started skateboarding. To me, that was so sad that, like, I literally couldn't locate the memory. So I've, like, pieced it back together and made a new myth, which I think is real, but my memories are sort of uh, faintly suggest that that opening scene of Back to the Future might be why I started skateboarding, because when you saw Michael J. Fox, like, holding on the back of those cars, that moment was the definition of what it meant to be a cool kid. Like, it had an outsider thing. That somehow led to watching the skateboard videos that had Black Flag and all that stuff in it. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, you know, you're talking about Black Flag. Mm-hmm. Keith Morris sang mm-hmm. for Black Flag. Mm-hmm. I just got the reissue of your album, Decline oh, right, of the right. West. Yeah, yeah. And you do this version of Beverly Hills by the Circle Jerks. Mm-hmm. And it's awesome, by the way. I just kind of put it on. And I was just, like, cleaning my apartment or something. And I was like... This is a Circle Jerk song, but the context, it sounds like one of your songs. Right, right, And to right. me, it was so cool that you've taken that hardcore element and kind of made it into kind of fit your aesthetic. Covering bands is like a cosmological map, much like this podcast or whatever. It's like the navigation of your own personal history and how you accidentally become yourself, but by some greater plan uh, with these kind of arbitrary elements, but that when you pull the camera back and get the God's eye view, it, it really, you see a very clear pattern. The Circle Jerks cover goes back to Thrashin', which is the quintessential skateboarding movie that starred Josh Brolin. Now, Josh Brolin, amazingly enough, 
was in a hardcore band. Did you know this? No, I did not know this. He was the bassist for Rich Kids on LSD. I loved Rich Kids on LSD. I had like their greatest hits record. I bought it like Best Buy when I was like 15. They had that, that song, We're Back, We're Pissed. Well, his father was like one of the great handsome man 70s actors. No, I didn't know that. He was in Westworld, which is legendary right there. It's just like, you turn off the mics. Bam. Done. You're in Westworld, you're a fucking gangster. Um, If you're a film nerd, which I've wasted a significant amount of my life at this point, he's in this cult movie called Night of the Juggler. Pretty dope name. (laughs) That would be James Brolin. Does that sound familiar? No, it doesn't. Daddy's little girl is missing. How are you going to find her? Somebody took her. Somebody's going to pay. You want to see your kid alive again? Daddy will make sure of that. Daddy! You're giving me a million bucks, you'll never see your kid again. James Brolin, a broadcast premiere, Night of a Juggler. James Brolin, cult legend. Okay, I'll take your word for it. Yeah, well, you have to, really. Uh, (laughs) So, basically... You know, before Gleaming the Cube, even, with Christian Slater, right. you know, like, this is the one VHS box that sits in your rental movie place, you know, that that has a skateboarder on it. So you rent it every other weekend. There's a very, very classic scene when the evil skateboarding gang is racing through the streets trying to find Josh Brolin. And they skate to Wild in the Streets by Circle Jerks. And that moment for me, is much more important than the fucking Rolling Stones playing in some Scorsese movie. I don't give a fuck about that. The irony of that is that Wild in the Streets was a quintessential rare cover of a New York 60s poet. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. Garland Jeffries. Look up his original version of Wild in the Streets. Fucking amazing. Actually, ironically, it sounds like a Stones rip. They open the scene in the movie with his version, and it's this, like, really seductive, kind of let-it-bleed vibe where he's just going wild in the streets. And then the evil skateboard gang sees Josh Brolin and drops their boards and start, and he goes wild and starts the Circle Jerks version. That stuck in my head for whatever, I don't know, fucking decades. So you have these cultures, these subcultures trading off and inspiring each other. If you're into John Cale from Velvet Underground, his finest moment is when he made a pop record called Vintage Violence right after the Velvet Underground, 
Garland Jeffrey's uh, whole band is his band for that record. And it's like absolutely perfect. I guess Garland Jeffries was like really tight with Lou Reed and, and all those guys. That's funny you saw Superchunk the other night because they figure into the story. Really? I saw them Thursday and then I got coffee with their drummer Friday. John Worcester? Yeah. Why? He's a friend of mine. He's been on the podcast. Oh. We're friends. And I was interviewing Bob Mold on Monday. Basically, Superchunk was just forming when I was like um, 13 or something in okay. this, this small town, Chapel Hill, where there was just one main drag um, that I've already talked about with the teen center on it and the stone wall and the post office and school kids records was the sort of epicenter of like what was going on. Like the people who were starting their own little tape labels and the people who were fanatically paying attention to what hardcore was going to change into worked there. So like the guru, I was drawn to school kids records and i would just go around the town hitting up each old person for their their specialized information every single day i mean i would literally like i was a cancer on the town you know it's like go to music loft talk to them about the history of music and then i go off to this record store that's been gone that nobody remembers that was in a caboose behind the grocery store run by this guy Carlos, and he would be playing uh, Eight Miles High by Husker Du or, you know, some early Minutemen or something. And I was kind of piecing this whole tapestry together from the skate videos and their soundtracks, you know. Then after his record store, I'd go off to Nice Price Books and buy my comic books and shit and talk to those guys. This is literally every single day. And then I'd go off to School Kids, which was kind of further away. And so by the time I got there, uh, it was like after school, you know, I, I would spend hours just sitting there flicking through their CD racks and, and Mac who, who started super chunk and ran merge, which now is like an institution. He was just a kid, you know, behind the desk. And so I would kind of just pester him. There was a story my mom told me once about how I went up to him. I was like 12 and was like, will there ever be a band as good as Led Zeppelin? 
<laughs> and he was just like, no. <laughs> and I'd gone and seen Super Chunk play or a very early show. Before John Wester was in the band, they had a drummer named Chuck. Really? I never knew that. Yeah, different drummer who went on to some other Chapel Hill bands. And uh, he walked into School Kids Records once, and I was uh, I was up at the counter. I was like, yeah, I saw Super Chunk last night. Terrible drummer. He literally walks in as I'm telling the staff, this guy sucks. <laughs> and uh, I guess I was chanting chuck chuck the drummer that sucks or something which is so obnoxious and is exactly what little kids do and probably will do to me or already have and so he walks in and the staff is like not protecting me they're like oh you should hear this kid go on about you they're like uh he uh he has a lot of opinions about your drumming you know just said you sucked actually and uh Dude flew into a rage, almost like looked like he was going to beat me up. I mean, this is like a man, you know, like 25 year old dude versus a 13 year old kid. I was just like, what are you going to do? I'm a kid. You're not going to do anything. I would like pop around to the cat's cradle, which, you know, was a very legendary club. As Sonic Youth wrote a song called Chapel Hill and talks about going to the cradle because there was a fucking power. There was something going on then and no one really understood what it was. But for whatever reason, I was incredibly lucky to be like born into this accidental moment. At the cat's cradle, there was a girl that worked the door, and she just thought I was cute, and she called me uh, Little One. And so she would just let me into all the fucking shows. And I, I, I don't think the all-ages thing was even really a thing yet or something. I don't think it was, like, a big deal there. So she just, like, marked my hand, and boom, I was in these shows. And because it was North Carolina, Fugazi would come there every... It seemed like every few months, you know? Are you serious? Yeah. So every Fugazi show, I would go up on stage and sit behind the uh, behind the drums. There was a crevice. If anybody's ever been to the old Cat's Cradle, the one that was on Franklin Street back in the day, there was this little, like, hole in the side of the stage near the back, and I would always crawl through. It was, like, one way you could get to the stage. So I'd crawl through... And, you know, I don't know why I thought it was okay, but it was very much like still kind of like, you know, some old dead Kennedy's VHS tape you'd see. It's like, we're all in this together. There's no fucking bouncers. There's no stage guard. This is still an early era. I would say 1989. And so I would sit on stage behind Brendan, and I would just watch in awe 
because he was the greatest drummer of his time. And I would get the band water if I, I, they didn't ask for it, but I'd like run and go get it for him. So you're like a bat boy, sort of. Yeah, self designated bat boy. And uh, and at the end, he'd give me his his drumsticks, and I would go home and just play drums until the drumsticks just broke. Leaving a Fugazi show in 1989, 1990, you couldn't sleep. Not only had you never seen anything like it, but you never felt anything like that. And so you went home, and instead of you wanting to do airwalk jumps in the mirror like David Lee Roth or something, you wanted to make music. It was so inspiring, you wanted to be creative. That's the thing, is it drove you towards yourself. It didn't drive you towards commodification of, of these legends, you know? It actually made you want to make art. This begins the big story of my whole life. The story that I was going to write the book about, uh, called My Best Friend, because what happened was I would go to these Fugazi shows and, and perch up on the stage and a year would go by, another year would go by. Usually they'd bring Shudder to Think, which became one of my favorite bands as a little kid because they were just so strange. And uh, Slant Six and all, the, all these like killer weird bands, you know, that they would bring with them it would always be opening up. And so one day I go down to see Fugazi and I had seen Super Chunk was going to be on the bill and then there was this other band. You're always curious about opening bands back then because you were peering into this extremely rarefied crevice of this culture that you couldn't find easily because these were the few people that spoke your language. So you wanted to know what the fuck, where they came from, what, what it was about, you know? And so I go over to the Cat's Cradle and I walk into the show to go see Fugazi and there's these uh, two guys on stage and they're playing these like broken ukuleles and they're like whispering, like chanting. And the crowd is so confused, so confused. Like, I mean, it was very much like no one wanted to see this kind of music yet. Nobody wanted to see things that weren't amplified, you know, that were quiet. Nobody wanted to see things that were confusingly mysterious. It was like this avant-garde moment. And it turned out to be Lou Barlow and Jason Lowenstein playing on basically the first Sebado tour, basically. And were they called Sebado? They were called Sebado, and Eric Effney had left the tour in the middle of it, so they had no drummer. So I'm kind of fumbling through the audience, you know, and records like You're Living All Over Me had sort of built the way we all saw underground music in Chapel Hill. So, like... I can hear someone whispering, like, in confusion, like, someone told me that's the guy from Dinosaur Jr. on stage, you know? So I'm kind of like, what? Like, I'm starting to piece this together, you know? Because I think they're playing Little Man, which is like this... Time is up, little man. Little man, down, down, down with the clock, drown, drown, drown in your blood. Can't take a piss, he's here. Can't watch TV, he's here. You fucking precious, precious little hit, little man. 
it was very much like a satanic kind of campfire chanting Manson clan kind of uh, seductive, whispery thing. And then they would break out into like hardcore guttural screaming, but with, with like a ukuleles and stuff. So everybody was completely confused and pretty much ignoring it, really. And so that set me off on this, this quest to understand what, why would these people be doing this shit? I went to school kids, found the CD, The Freed Weed, which is pretty much their first available CD, and, and went up to the counter and was like, is this that stuff like at the end of your living all over me, like Polito, like the Jesus Christ screaming and the noise static? And the guy was like, no, I don't think so, man. I was like, yeah, I think it is. I'm buying this. And I went home and, like, devoured this, like, 40-song record that, to this day, everything I do comes from walking into that show and accidentally seeing them and then having to figure out this really discordant, out-of-tune, confusing non-genre music, you know, that was made in the true spirit of, like, home recording, meaning outside of the industry, meaning exploring yourself alone, meaning not in a studio. <laughs> on drugs by yourself. So this entire movement was born that I was born of. The next Sebado show, when they came back around, when, like, Sebado 3 had come out, which was, like, already being acknowledged as, like, the beginning of an entire underground movement, that's how I met my best friend. I go to the old Cat's Cradle again to see another show, except instead of it being a Fugazi show where it's, like, completely packed, it's empty. Sebado's uh, slowly meandering out onto the stage, and Blue Barlow's not there because he's apparently asleep, like they're announcing on the mic, like, we gotta go wake him up. It's extremely disheveled. There's no one in the audience. I seem to remember there was just these shadows in the back of the club where people are kind of hiding in. And then there's, like, three extremely overweight girls in the front row that are super excited and no one's there, and I could not give a fuck, right? I'm like, this is my religion. I am there to see, like, the definitive songs of my life that I haven't even heard yet, and I'm going to memorize them that night. I'm going to hear them one time, and I'm going to know every fucking word and how to play them, you know? And so this is how the beginning of my story really starts, my whole shit, you know? So how old are you at this point? I want to say... That I had just turned 16. I, okay. I want to say that maybe I had a car. Basically, Jason Lowenstein and Eric Gaffney are just kind of turned away from the audience. Lou Barlow comes out and is extremely tired, just woken up. And they're tuning. It's like a really depressed moment, you know? This is a period where Lou Barlow was like... A, pretty regularly like crying on stage and like you know throwing all sorts of tantrums on stage 
which is why you loved this band is because you never knew what was going to happen ever. Like they were a complete mess. And so they're turned around from the audience and they are tuning and it's just dead energy in the room, nothing going on. And out of nowhere, this guy who's clearly not involved with the band or anyone comes around at this super fast pace outside the edge of the club running runs up through the back of the stage the band is oblivious they don't even know what's going on they're fucking just like waking up and tuning and at full speed runs up to the lip of the stage does a perfect olympic hardcore full frontal flip frozen perfectly out of like 1983 in a minor threat video slams down on the three overweight girls and just sends them flying like bowling pins literally they're just rolling off and he flips up onto his feet and puts his hands in the air like an olympic champion and he goes running off out out of the club and i memorized what he looked like everything about his hair his glasses his shorts and i was just like that guy's a genius i was like that guy is the most important person in here (laughs) i have no idea what it what it was about him but it was like first of all he hit all the right notes right he hit the 1983 hardcore note like he was just like a perfect period piece out of nowhere appeared and was gone, you know? And his smile, like his charisma, I have no idea what his fucking mission was. I mean, this guy was out there, right? And I swear to God, Sebado turned around very slowly and just like launched into their saddest song and had no idea what had happened, you know? But I, I photographically memorized everything about this guy. And it just fucking... Never left my mind. I thought about him all the time. It's like a very particular kind of almost sexual energy when you're a young boy and you see an, especially like a skate demo or something, when you see a a boy like fucking fly by you like 11 feet in the air over your head and land with just like this crazy confident look on their face and you're like, what the fuck? Like, how were you created? Because you were created to do this. Like, you didn't learn this. This is pure, raw, natural energy. Pure, raw, natural talent. And you see these kids that are just born of this energy, and it's fucking entrancing. And that's what pulls you into the underground. That's what pulls you into skateboarding or anything. It's just seeing these kids or hip-hop, like, it could be anything. Seeing kids that embody this wild confidence and so you cut yourself in that mold like there's got to be something that i know because i'm not going to be the best skateboarder i might as well quit now you know that's what i remember thinking it's like there's got to be some way i can express myself as powerfully as that So I'm just spun by this whole experience. I'm like totally in love with this whole idea of complete personal freedom that Sebado is preaching. Obviously, Fugazi had preached it. I'm starting to take drugs, you know, under the tutelage of Ron. 
who didn't really understand punk music. I had to try to explain it to him, but he was so hung up on his King Crimson <laughs> philosophy right. that we started to diverge. So as I'm kind of getting a little rowdier and a little more out there, Ron is starting to fade away into the background. It's like perfect timing because I need this new guru. To make a long story short, which is not our job here, I could not stop thinking about this guy. And so I'm driving around, 16 years old, and I start to see him around in my mom's neighborhood. I start to see him walking his dog. And even just walking his dog, he looks like completely suspicious. He's got a smirk about him, like his eyes smirk, like everything about him is like so wise to me. And I'm 16, so he's probably maybe 20. So one day I'm getting gas at this, this, this gas station called the Happy Store. I had a big happy face on the side. And uh, he's the guy behind the counter working. And he has a Walkman perched right by like the gum and he's listening to Joni Mitchell Blue which seemed pretty strange for uh, for her like gas station attendant and I knew the music but I didn't know why I knew it because Joni Mitchell was not cool that kind of stuff wasn't really cool at the time but little did I know my father had lived with Joni Mitchell so like maybe I had known it and forgot it because I was so into hardcore, I didn't really want to think about David Crosby and the Bee Gees and stuff. But he knew Hall and Oates. My mom said uh, my dad had even taken John Lennon sailing. What? Yeah. These are stories my mom would tell me on these long car rides. So it was just kind of like this thing like about my dad that was this endless well of crazy stories. Basically, I hear the Joni Mitchell on his Walkman, and it's, like, really clicking for me. I'm like, this is, like, something I'm part of, and this guy's part of it, too. I can't remember anything about Joni Mitchell knowing my dad, but I'm just, like, pulled in. He just the sound of it was so sweet and hazy and strange. My brain just says, do you know Nick Drake? Do you listen to Nick Drake? Little did I know, he had come down from Boston. And Boston at that time was like the ground floor of like record nerd collector mindsets, you know, whatever. I seem to remember just having this brief three-sentence conversation with him where we kind of acknowledged, you're like part of that shit. And the next time I saw him, I was in a drug deal in this park by my mom's house called Wilson Park where I used to play, like, peewee baseball. And I was down there, and I saw him, like, he somehow magically appeared into the drug deal, I think accidentally, because he would just like that. He was just, like, magnetically drawn to, like, insidious situations. Yeah. And it turned out he was living at the top of the park in this, like, dilapidated, really odd little apartment that looks like it could fall down. And somehow the drug deal just gravitates up into his place. And within 30 minutes, as far as I remember, I was like completely super high. I had taken my clothes off and I was in my underwear up on one of his tables and he had a tarantula and they were videotaping me playing with the, with the spider or something. But from that moment on, me and this dude were going to be hanging out every day. 
I had just been given my first hit of blue sunshine because the dead had just come through. And so they just litter Chapel Hill with like tons of LSD. And it was really, really, really good. He found out that I had this tab and he was like, let's go get it. I need it right now. And we spent like the rest of the night watching him do flips into this pool. It was the beginning of what was basically going to like shoot me off into who I became because we ended up moving back to Boston together. Little did I know he was already making lo-fi music and Sebado themselves already was obsessed with the stuff he was doing. But I mean, he was the ultimate rebel's rebel in that he didn't want anyone to know who he was. When you're 16, really strange behavior and really odd ideas, it's what you want. You want to be thrown into the darkest corners and you want to see the most exotic things. Like being crazy, the Sid Barrett definition of being crazy, this artist, the visionary, the idea is that they're this shaman, you know, leading you to a place of like complete uh, salvation. And yet when you get older, you start to see that a lot of those kids that sort of spearheaded those movements were merely mentally ill. They did have glimpses of these peak experiences and these extremely radical, powerful ideas, but when you get a little older, you you start to see those unhealthy patterns for what they are. So we went down this very long, winding course together, and Duncan eventually worshipped this guy, too. And so, my new guru was born. I knew immediately when I saw that guy jump off the stage. I, I knew that I was going to follow this person. And that's why people follow Jesus Christ. There's enough of a sliver of something that you're seeing through this person that you're like, I would give up everything that I have now to see where this goes. You know, that's, that's why people put shit down and grow their beard out and wear a fucking flowing white gown and hang glide off a mountain and die. You know, it's because they're after this fucking thing that they saw that renders everything else meaningless. And that was the most powerful drug I could possibly think of. I, I started to look back at my life and look back at everybody around me and my school and my teachers and my friends, those people didn't invoke a feeling of trust. I didn't feel a true sense of brotherhood with them. And in meeting this guy, it put it all in perspective. I was like, wow, I really don't feel like I'm the same species as these people. Suddenly they meant nothing to me. Like suddenly only one thing meant something to me and it was 
pursuing this guy and finding out what it is I'm really supposed to be doing with my life, you know? And so, whereas Ron was more like a chaperone (laughs) into like a field trip of drug experience, this was going to be the beginning of something that was completely unknown and I was going to give myself to it completely because I didn't care about anything else anymore. This was like the end of my life up to that point and I was going to disappear into this new thing, this cult of two people. You you hear about Mecca and you're like, I have to go to this place. I'm dropping everything or I'm entering the war. I don't care if I die. It was this sense of like everything is starting right now. Test your patience, I know you've all 